We're in our main message series on the life of Jesus going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order. We're examining all the teachings of Jesus, all the miracles, everything he did and said so that we can know him firsthand. And instead of hearing from other people, did you know Jesus said this? We can discover firsthand what he actually said and see it in our own Bibles. Last time we were in our study, we saw Jesus miraculously feed 10, 15, possibly 20,000 people with one boy's dinner. It's the ultimate happy meal. It was an unbelievable miracle that was observed by thousands and thousands of people. And we saw Jesus walk on the water to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and we learned some great lessons about the importance of keeping our eyes on Jesus as we saw Peter walk on the water to join Jesus. Today's study picks up right where we left off last week. It's around breakfast time, the same morning that the disciples had seen Jesus walking on the water, which happened between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It's that same morning around breakfast time. So keep in mind, this is still the high point of Jesus' ministry. His popularity is extreme. There are thousands of people just rushing to see him everywhere he goes, every time he speaks. There's huge momentum behind his ministry. But today we're going to find out that numbers don't really mean that much because the motives of the people are incredibly important. And those motives are going to be exposed in today's teaching. We're going to discover that very few of them are actually following Jesus. Have you ever heard the phrase, it's one of my favorites, beware the tyranny of the urgent? I don't know if you've ever heard this. I love that phrase because it's loaded with truth. Here's what it means. It means the most important things in life are rarely the most pressing things in life. Your marriage, your family, your kids, your relationship with the Lord, the most important things in life will rarely stand up and yell and say, give attention to me, give attention to me. Usually it's the meaningless things that scream and beg for our attention. The tyranny of the urgent, beware that the most pressing things may not be the most important things. And today, Jesus is going to address the difference between our greatest perceived needs and our genuine greatest need. He's going to say, you think this is urgent over here, but this is really the most pressing need you have. We're going to begin in John chapter 6, verse 22. It says, on the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except that one which his disciples had entered, so they've come across the sea and they see there's just the disciples' boat, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone, so they get to the other side of the lake and they discover that, okay, Jesus wasn't where we left, and only the disciples' boat is here, and Jesus wasn't in that boat, so how did Jesus get here? It says, however... Other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. That was the feeding of the 5,000. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. If you're thinking, that's great, they were seeking Jesus, praise God. Hold on to that thought because, as we said, their motives are going to be revealed as not being very altruistic. Verse 25, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Verse 59 will tell us they actually found him in the synagogue in Capernaum. I think Jesus knew that they wouldn't believe him if he said, well, I just walked across the Sea of Galilee because I'm the Messiah. It's the fastest way. He knew they were hard-hearted, and for that reason, he knew they would be unable to recognize him as Messiah. 
So Jesus ignores the question they ask and instead addresses the issue, not of how he got there, but why they are there. He says, I want to talk about that. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Jesus is telling them that they all enjoyed the benefits of his miraculous power. They all ate the bread that he miraculously multiplied, but they missed the fact that this was a supernatural miracle. It was a sign that said, Messiah, here. They missed the sign, even though it happened right before their eyes, and they literally ate it. They literally ate the miracle. They missed the connection between what Jesus did and what he taught. The miracle was supposed to prove that what he was teaching was true. And they missed it. They didn't put two and two together. And now they're seeking Jesus because they want to be amazed again. They want to be entertained again. They want to be dazzled again. More specifically, they want a free breakfast. They're completely, completely missing the point. Write this down. The crowd was focusing on the blessing instead of the blesser. The crowd was focusing on the blessing instead of the blesser. Way more excited about the blessing than the blesser. They're more excited about the provision than they are about the provider. They're more excited about the gift than they are the giver. I think we see something very similar to this in our society, especially in Vancouver, when it comes to the subject of creation, the earth. Most people who live here are awed by the beauty of where we live. It's why most people choose to live here. The mountains, the oceans, the rivers, the valleys. It's unbelievably beautiful here. We try to get out at least once a week with our kids and just enjoy where we get to live. And many people here will expend massive amounts of energy and resources enjoying nature. They'll go snowboarding, mountain biking, hiking, fishing in remote lakes, all kinds of things. And in all of that enjoyment, almost nobody will stop to ponder who made this? How does get here? Because of hard-heartedness, most people will spend their lives enjoying creation without ever knowing or enjoying the creator. They will spend their lives enjoying the breath that God put in their lungs and our God-given ability to experience and feel joy without ever acknowledging that God. The Bible says it like this in Romans. It says, professing to be wise... They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Other translations will say they served creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. I think we see that all around us all the time. Let's sacrifice for the earth. Man, let's pour our heart and soul into it. There's nothing more important. It's so beautiful. It's so amazing. Well, who, who made it? Who made it? Jesus says, you're not seeking me because you desire truth. You're seeking me because you think that I can benefit your earthly life. You're just interested in the perks. And now Jesus is going to explain that we have much greater needs than our present earthly needs. Jesus is going to reveal, you can write this down, that our greatest need is not temporal but eternal. Our greatest need is not temporal 
but eternal. Our greatest need is not something here on this earth that is going to last and fade away. Our greatest need is related to eternal things, things that will last forever. Our eternal destiny, the future of our soul, our spirit. Jesus says that's the most pressing need. But because you think you can't see it, because you can't taste it, because you can't wear it, you don't think it's urgent. Verse 27, Jesus says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to, and then I want you to underline, everlasting life, which the Son of Man will, and then I want you to underline, give you. Because God the Father has set his seal on him. This is heavy. Jesus is telling them, guys, you took boats across the Sea of Galilee to find me. Most of you don't even have boats. So you begged for rides. You hitched rides. You hustled. You hopped on a wagon and drove around the lake. You walked, some of you, to be here with me. Some of you didn't even sleep last night just to be around me so that you could experience another miracle and get another free meal. If you would work as hard at seeking truth as you do for free food, you would find the truth. You'd find it. If you worked as hard to look for it as you do for earthly things. And the same is true for us in our culture today. If we would work as diligently and passionately at finding the creator of the earth as we do at enjoying the earth, we would find our creator. We would find him. The plea of Jesus is stop working for things that are going to perish one day. You cannot solve your eternal problems with earthly solutions. And isn't that most of the people on the planet today? Isn't that most of your friends, most of your coworkers, most of your family? Isn't that us too much of the time consumed by the seeming urgency of our earthly needs, neglecting and putting off our eternal spiritual needs and the things that will last forever as is almost always the case in life the need that seems the most urgent is rarely the real need you know cancer needs medicine but that medicine will not stop you from dying later what we really need is a solution for death these people were hungry and wanted food but that need being met would not solve their problem of being separated from God, having sin create a barrier between them and God that nothing could get across. Food wasn't going to fix that. But if you had asked them, they would have said, our greatest need right now, breakfast. Breakfast. And you hear it, and the, the insanity and the ridiculousness of that statement hits you. But we are the same way. How often if someone said to us, what is your greatest need right now? We would say money. Money is my greatest need. Not faith to believe God can provide. I need money. I need a real solution here. Jesus says, I want to bless you spiritually. That's great, but I need breakfast. I need breakfast. That's what Jesus is talking about. When he says, do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. And there's another huge, huge truth in here. 
This might change the whole way you view salvation and Jesus and why you're a Christian, why you should follow him, why you should give your life to Jesus. This is huge. You should not follow Jesus and give your life to him because you think he can physically heal you. You should not give your life to Jesus because you believe he can fix your finances. You should not give your life to Jesus because you believe he will help your career. The reason you should give your life to Jesus is because he is the only one who possesses everlasting life. Nobody else has that to give. Nobody. And if you're following him for any other reason, then your faith is probably not real. Because what are you going to do if that benefit disappears or never appears? If you're following God because you think, man, I believe he's going to fix this for me. What if he doesn't? What if he doesn't? What if it doesn't happen? Then what is your faith other than a hope that following God would get you what you wanted and fix all your problems? Everlasting life. Jesus himself, that's the only reason to give your life to God is the realization that I have a need that nobody else can meet besides Jesus. It is my deepest need. It is my greatest need. It is my eternal need. And this is why the church misses it when we pitch Jesus to people saying, he'll fix your marriage. That's why you should come to church. He'll help your career. That's why you should come to church. What if he doesn't? What if he doesn't? What if the divorce still goes through? What if you lose your job? Was it all for nothing? Only Jesus has everlasting life. And when we tell people, you should give your life to Jesus because he can fix all these things, what we're really saying is that's a better offer than everlasting life. I realize everlasting life may not be enough to get you excited about following Jesus. So let me make you a really exciting offer. He can increase your income by 33%. Oh, now I'm interested. Now I'm interested. If we don't understand that everlasting life is the greatest offer we can give, if we don't understand that forgiveness of everything you've ever done wrong, everything you'll ever do, freedom from guilt and shame being brought into the family of God, if we don't understand those things are the greatest things we have to offer people, then we don't get it. We don't get it. We're missing it. That's the danger of the prosperity gospel. It's trying to bring people into the kingdom of God by making them an offer that they're more excited about than everlasting life. I don't have anything better to offer you, sorry, than everlasting life in Jesus Christ beginning right now. That's the best thing we have to offer. And by the way, we're not the only people that can help someone's marriage. We're not the only people that can help someone's career. We don't own the monopoly on that. But only Jesus has everlasting life. Only Jesus. Why are you following him right now? Why are you following him? What's your motivation? Is it the blessings or the blesser? The gifts or the giver? The greatest gift you could ever receive is the giver himself. There is no greater gift. And I want you to hear me on this because I mentioned the prosperity gospel. Money and comfort and fun and travel, those are not bad things. Contrary to what you've heard, the Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. The Bible says what? The love of money is the root of all evil. 
God is not against money or pleasure. How do I know he's not against pleasure? Well, because he's prepared an eternity of it for us. That's a pretty good witness that God is not against pleasure. And how do I know he's not against money? Well, because the word of the Lord says, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. The Lord wants to prosper those who follow him, but we will never be those who follow him if we're only following him because we're hoping he might prosper us. If that's the reason you're following him, I got news for you, you're not following him. You're not following him. If your only motivation is what he can do for you financially. God will prosper us for eternity and as much as he can in this life. But we must remember two truths. One, the Father's greatest desire is that we become like his son Jesus. Two, this is a fallen world currently under management by Satan. Those things have an impact. That's why we're not all millionaires. As we always say, most of us, if we were millionaires, our need and desperation for Jesus would just plummet. It would plummet. Jesus wants to bless all of us, I believe, as much as he can while not causing it to damage our relationship with him or make us take it more lightly. I really believe, man, you want to be prosperous in life. You need to learn to have a relationship with God that doesn't do this but stays like this, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. That's when God says, hey, you know what? You're passionate about me when it's good and you're passionate about me when it's bad. I can trust you with these things. Most of us aren't there yet. I'm probably not there yet, if I'm being honest. But if you're only following Jesus because you think he's a solution to your earthly problems, then you're probably not following Jesus at all because he may not solve your earthly problems. That's what's going on with these people. They're not excited about the kingdom of God. They're excited about a free meal ticket and someone who might overthrow the Romans for them, someone to fix their earthly issues, what they think is the most important thing. Then Jesus makes an incredible statement that we just read, almost in passing. He says, these eternal needs that you have, yeah, the Son of Man, me, I'll give them to you. I'll give it to you. The solution for all your problems, I'll give it to you. I'll give you eternal life because the Father has given me the power to do that. Wow. So, so the logical question becomes, well, how do I receive it? How do I get saved? Revealing that human nature was the same 2,000 years ago as it is today. The people assume that they must have to do something to earn their salvation, to earn membership in God's family. Verse 28, then they said to him, what shall we do? I want you to underline do. What shall we do that we may work? Underline work, the works of God. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? What's the equation, Jesus? So write this down. The crowd assumes that their eternal solution must be works-based. They say, okay, that makes sense. There's an equation. What do we got to do? Give me the checklist, Jesus. It's got to be something I do to earn this. So they assume it's based on their works, something they're going to do. And any works-based salvation, however you slice it, still places self at the center of the universe. It's still all about you because it's all about your power to control your destiny and your power to earn your salvation. It's about your ability and your power. So the self-righteous person asks confidently, what shall we do? Because they're assuming that they can solve the problem themselves. Just tell me what I got to do. The humble person says, what shall we do with pessimism and a little bit of dread? Because the humble person is thinking, I'm sure whatever it is, there's no way I can do it. There's no way I can live up to that. And they ask it almost dreading what the response is going to be. 
That's why Jesus' response to this question, to this day, causes the self-righteous confusion, but the humble to rejoice. What did Jesus say back in verse 27? This is the glorious truth. Jesus referred to the solution as everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Give you. Give you. This was an idea that was and is still so radical, the people couldn't even wrap their heads around it. Give me? Give me? Judaism has the Ten Commandments. Islam has the five pillars of faith. Buddhism has the eight steps to nirvana. New Age spirituality has karma. Catholicism has confession to a priest and Hail Marys. Jehovah's Witnesses have bicycles and door-to-door ministry. But Jesus says, I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. It's my free gift to you. If you're struggling with feeling good enough for God, then listen to what Jesus himself said. He said, this is what you must do to earn salvation. This is what you must do. Verse 29, Jesus answered them and said to them, and I want you to underline this whole verse, this is the work of God. Not works, plural, but work. One thing. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. That you believe in him whom he sent. I could cry tears of joy every time I read that because all I can think is, I can do that. I can do that. I believe in Jesus. I believe. I believe. It's not about what I do, but what Jesus did for me. That's the work that you and I are called to. Write this down. I love this. The work, in quotations, the work we're called to is believing that Jesus has done all the work for us. That's what it is. The work we're called to is believing that Jesus has done all the work for us. That he's done all the work for us. That's our part in the process. And everything flows out of that. So does a Christian still do good works? Absolutely. If you believe in Jesus, you will obey Jesus out of love for him. But here's the difference. We don't obey Jesus because we're trying to earn our salvation. We obey Jesus because we're so grateful that we've already received our salvation. We're not motivated by guilt or fear or by pressure or shame. The Christian is motivated by gratitude for what we've already received that we can never lose. That's why we obey Jesus. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. But the crowd doesn't respond with, man, praise God, this is awesome. Because as we learned last week, a hard heart cannot believe that Jesus is God, no matter how overwhelming the evidence. Verse 30, therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then? that we may see it and believe you. What work will you do? Apparently these guys suffer from serious short-term memory loss. Because like me, you're thinking, last night, remember, like 12 hours ago, did this amazing, amazing thing. They actually know that. They're remembering it. They're just not impressed by it. This just gets worse and worse as far as the crowd goes because they have hard hearts. Just like our friends every week who go out into the creation of God and yet say, where's the evidence that God exists? Where's the evidence that God exists? I'm at the place now where I'm like, I've got nothing else for you. 
my greatest argument is not as great as just standing on top of Golden Ears or in Lynn Canyon or just getting up and seeing a sunrise. Nothing I can articulate about the glory of God can touch that. So if a person looks at that and still says, how do I know God exists? I can't help you. Just keep looking. Keep looking until you see it. Verse 31, this is their beef with Jesus. Our fathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So you may or may not be familiar with the story, so I'll run through it real quick. Back in the day, Israel are all slaves in Egypt, the entire nation. God raises up a man named Moses to free the Israelites from the Egyptian rule. The Pharaoh won't let him go. We have the famous plagues of Egypt, the locusts, the water turning to blood, all that stuff. Finally lets him go. Egyptian army chases them. God miraculously takes Israel through the Red Sea, closes the Red Sea on the Egyptian army, killing them all. And now the Israelites are on their way to the promised land. Should take only a couple of weeks to get there, this land called Canaan. However, they turn away from God within days, all the way to the point of worshiping a golden calf instead of worshiping God. God doesn't take kindly to this, so he says, hey, so here's the deal. Instead of it taking two weeks, it's going to take you 40 years, which should be just enough time for everybody in this wicked generation to all die out. Good plan. So this is what goes on. They go into the wilderness now. They're walking around in circles for 40 years. God sustains them with miraculous food from heaven called manna. So one of the cultural expectations of the day Jesus is in right now, this is being taught by many rabbis. They were misinterpreting a few Old Testament scriptures, but they believed that when the Messiah came, he would go back to providing manna for Israel. Like nobody would ever have to make food again. The Messiah would provide manna for everyone. So it's interesting to note that before they can even raise this expectation, back in verse 27, Jesus says, do not labor for the food which perishes. So Jesus actually pre-addresses the issue before they even raise it. He knows it's coming. But what they're saying to him is they're saying, Jesus, you know, you fed us once, but uh, Moses fed us for like 40 years. So you're going to have to up your game a little bit. That's how hard their hearts are. Verse 32, then Jesus said to them, uh, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. So he's saying, reality check, my father gave you the bread from heaven, not Moses. And then Jesus says, but my father gives you, so now, the true bread from heaven and eternal bread to fill eternal needs and eternal hungers. Did you notice that Jesus said, my father? So when Jesus says, my father, he's claiming to be equal with the father and to have come directly from the father. He's not saying our father. He's saying my father. He's claiming to be God in the flesh. He's claiming to be the Messiah. And the people would have known this, but instead of prying further and saying, wait a minute, are you claiming to be the long-prophesied Messiah? Instead, they're like, hmm, interesting, my father. Let's talk about this some more after you make us that breakfast. That's where these guys are right now. Jesus keeps going, and he says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to, and then I want you to underline the world, the world. Manna didn't come from heaven in the sense that it was in a cupboard in heaven and the Father was like, it didn't come from heaven in that way. It means the, the one who created it, who caused it to appear on the earth, was the Father. However, the bread of heaven, Jesus, was literally in heaven and came down from heaven to the earth. Jesus says that's who the bread of heaven is going to be. Now, who is the bread of God coming to? I had you underline it. That's right, the world. 
He's coming to the world. It's going to be important. We're going to come back to that. Verse 34, then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. They heard what they wanted to hear, which was, did you say bread? Yes, give us bread. And they still don't get it. They think Jesus is going to go to like a bag and pull out a magical loaf of bread that he's like, this will make you live forever. So Jesus gets a little bit more direct in verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. You might want to underline that. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who, and then underline, believes in me shall never thirst. That clears things up. So Jesus is the one who came from heaven to give life to the world, and he's come to satisfy the eternal hunger that the Bible says exists deep in the soul of every human being. Theologians love to point out some fascinating things about the analogy of bread that Jesus chooses when he gives himself the title of I'm the bread of life. You see, bread is the most universal food in existence. It's the most universal food in existence. It's enjoyed around the world in every culture almost daily by every person. It's the food that we can live the longest on. If you have bread and water, you can live longer on that than water and any other type of food. But how bread is produced is even more incredible. You see, it begins as a seed planted in the ground, and that seed grows up all the way to full maturity. And when it reaches the point of full maturity, that's when it's cut down. When it's cut down, it has to be ground up. Then it has to be passed through the fire and cooked for a specific amount of time. And then when it's fully baked, it's brought out to be enjoyed by everyone in every culture all around the world. Jesus was planted by the Father as a seed in Mary. He grew up to full maturity when he was then cut down. He's beaten and whipped and ground up and made to pass through the fire of the Father's full wrath. The wrath of God that should have been poured out on you and I for the sins that we did is poured out on Him. But after that process is complete, you and I are given the opportunity to receive Jesus and enjoy Him forever, wherever we're from, whatever we've done. And I shouldn't have to tell you this because it should just be a given, but bread is awesome. You know, we never seem to get tired of bread. Anybody in here hate the smell of fresh bread? Don't raise your hand. We'll all think you're weird. Nobody hates the smell of fresh bread, okay? We just don't get tired of it. Anybody ever completely fill up on the bread that they bring you at the restaurant sometimes before your meal comes? You just, like, can't stop. They could take two hours with my food at the keg, and as long as the bread keeps coming, I'm like, this place is good. This is good service. I'll just fill up on the bread, and then I'll soldier through my steak and baked potato. I'll just tough it out. Pretend that I didn't just fill up on like four loaves of bread. Everybody loves bread. Everybody loves bread. If they have another riot in Vancouver, the police could just throw freshly baked bread at the crowd and everyone would chill out and be happy. That's what they should be doing. It's a brilliant idea. I should patent this. Just throw loaves of bread at people. They'll love you. for This is good stuff. But this is why you never meet a Christian who says, you know what? I really wish I'd waited longer to become a Christian I wish I had sinned a little bit more, taken advantage of, of that time, you know, destroyed my life a little bit more before I came to Jesus. There's some stuff I wanted to do. Nobody has that testimony. Nobody has that testimony. Instead, what you hear is, I wish I hadn't waited so long to give my life to Jesus because all the negative things in my life are pretty much the consequences of my time spent not following Jesus. That's what you hear all the time. You won't meet the Christian who says, man, I wish I'd waited a little bit longer. Wish I'd waited a little bit longer. Jesus is the bread of life. You'll never get tired of him. I get tired of me. 
But I never get tired of Jesus. You never get tired of Jesus. Verse 36, Jesus says, But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet do not believe. So this is almost a disclaimer from Jesus. He's telling us that everything he's about to tell these guys is going to have no effect on them whatsoever because they've seen Jesus be Jesus with their own eyes. They ate of the bread, and they still don't believe. So Jesus is telling them and us nothing that he's about to say is going to have any effect on these guys. It's really for our benefit. Verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And and then I want you to underline, The one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is, and then underline, the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, and then underline, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that, and then underline, everyone who sees the Son, and and then underline, believes in him, may have, underline, everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. There's enough there to study for months, for months. That's an intense bit of Scripture. I'm going to do my best to break down a few massive things in a short amount of time that you really need to know about as a Christian. So the first truth we see is that not only is the only way to the Father through Jesus, but the only way to Jesus is through the Father calling you to Him, giving you to Jesus. In just a few verses in verse 44, Jesus will say it like this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So the Father has to draw us to Jesus, and then Jesus makes a way for us to go to the Father. We cannot even understand our need for forgiveness and salvation unless the Father reveals it to us. We can't even recognize our need for him unless he reveals it to us. Write this down. I'm saved because God chose me. I'm saved because God chose me. Now, before you recreational theologians freak out and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, sounds a lot like predestination talk. Just stay cool. Everything's going to be okay. So this is where one of the greatest, if not the greatest, of all Christian theological debates begins. This is a a doctrinal boxing match that has been going on for centuries. I'm going to explain it as briefly as I can. So in the left corner, we have Calvinism. And the central belief in Calvinism is called predestination. It's the idea that we have no involvement at all in whether or not we are believers. It's not your choice. It's all predetermined by God. Everything is up to him and his sovereign will. He chooses to save some and he chooses not to save some and he has the right to do that because he's God. If he's chosen to save you, you can't help but be saved. And if he's chosen not to save you, there's nothing you can do to be saved. It's all up to his sovereignty. And if you're into hyper-Calvinism, super Calvinism, then you believe that God has predestined absolutely everything. Yeah, that shirt that you thought you chose this morning, you didn't choose it. God chose it for you before he even made the world. That's hyper-Calvinism, okay? Not your decision. Whatever you're thinking about what I've just said, not your decision. That's hyper-Calvinism, okay? (laughs) You know? (laughs) In the right corner, we have Arminianism. And the central belief of Arminianism is called free will. It's the idea that we are the ones who make the decision whether or not we receive Jesus. He's done all the work, but it's entirely up to us whether we receive him or not. So, where do we fall as a church? 
I'd start by mentioning again one of the most important things to understand about interpreting the Bible. However you interpret the scriptures, it must harmonize, it must be in unity with the rest of scripture. So any verse that you hone in on and say, well, this says this, so it must mean this. However you interpret that verse, it has to be in harmony and unity with all the rest of Scripture. If you have to ignore other parts of Scripture for that to be true, you're doing it wrong. If you have to come up with a really lame and obviously weak explanation or interpretation of other verses to make it work, you're doing it wrong. It's bad theology. So on this issue of predestination versus free will, we believe that both perspectives clearly appear in Scripture. Just in this chapter, we see predestination. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Predestination. But we also see free will, because who did Jesus come to give life to in verse 33? The world. Not the select, not the elect, the world. So in places like Romans 8 in the Bible, we see verses that clearly speak of predestination. It says, those he foreknew, he also predestined. But we also see that in Romans 8, God's predestining is based on his foreknowledge. So here's the idea. You have free will. He knows what you're going to do with that free will. Him knowing what you're going to do with that free will doesn't make it not free will. If I put a cookie on my counter for my kid and I say, don't eat that, but I know he's going to eat it. I didn't take away his free will just because I know that he's going to eat that cookie. God gives us free will. He knows what we're going to do with that free will. And then he predestines us based on his knowledge of what we're going to do with that free will. It would be like this if we were picking softball teams. And I'm one of the captains and I'm choosing. Bob Smith is over there and Bob's going, oh, I hope Jeff doesn't pick me. I really don't want to be on his team. Ugh. Am I picking Bob for my team? No, he can go to the other stupid team. So that's what it's like. Jesus knows what team every person is going to choose. He knows who's going to choose him, and he knows who's not going to choose him. He makes absolutely sure that every person who would choose him if they were given the opportunity gets the opportunity to choose him. He makes sure that happens. Makes sure that happens. But to those who would choose not to follow him, does he owe them the opportunity? He doesn't owe them the opportunity. He knows what they're going to do with the opportunity. In Peter's epistle, we're told that God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that, what's the word? Whoever, whoever. And the next phrase is not is chosen. It's not whoever is elected. It's whoever believes. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And those words are coming from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. So is New Hope Church Calvinist or Arminianist? We would say that we reject the idea that you have to choose either extreme position. And we would say that, I just invented this word because you're a pastor, you can do that. I would say that we're biblicist. We're biblicist. That's a great word. We believe that what the Bible says is true, that everything the Bible says is true about free will and about predestination. And we also believe that you can't take an extreme position on either side without being in conflict with other parts of Scripture. That's why we're unwilling to do that. 
So we simply agree with everything the Bible says about the nature of salvation. We're in the middle. The answer is somewhere between God's sovereignty and man's free will choice. And, and what percentage makes up each of those? We don't know. We don't know. And we're comfortable with believing that equation is a mystery. I've heard it described this way before. It's like imagine a door and the door says, enter if you want to. Oh, awesome. And then you walk through the door and you notice on the back of a door is a sign that says, congratulations, you were chosen before the world was made. And you're thinking, oh, how, how does this work? There's a mystery there. And if you think we're copping out, please know that you can't follow Jesus. You can't serve God if you can't be comfortable with the fact that he's God and we're not. If you're not going to be okay with that, you're going to have some real problems in the faith. There will be things that we cannot understand because we're not all-knowing creatures yet. Paul, probably the greatest theologian who ever lived, said this to Timothy. And I love this because it happens to be in 1 Timothy 3.16. I don't think that's a coincidence. Paul, the greatest theologian that ever lived, said, and without controversy. In other words, you can't argue about this. It's inarguable. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. Paul says, Timothy, this whole thing, all of this, Jesus, the Son of God, coming down to heaven to be a man, to die for us, salvation by faith, a gospel that spreads across the world under the worst persecution that's ever been seen, unstoppable, an eternity in heaven. All of, all of this at the end of the day is an incredible mystery. How this all works, Paul has a moment where he says, I, I don't even know. When I step back, I just have to go, wow, this, there's a mystery to all this. And the second you think you figured it all out, you've lost the plot. The gospel the incarnation, heaven, all of it should completely blow your mind on a regular basis. If it doesn't and you think you figured it all out, you're thinking too small. You're thinking too small. If Paul is comfortable using the word mystery, so are we. I know you want to understand it. So do I. So what do we do? We believe all of the scripture and we get excited when we read this promise for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I also am known. We'll know it all one day. We'll get it all one day. So if you're here today and you're not a believer, you're not a believer. The Father has chosen you and he is drawing you to Jesus. And the Bible says you need to make the choice to receive everlasting life the everlasting life that Jesus wants to give to you. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I don't like that. I didn't ask to be chosen. I don't want to choose to believe in Jesus. Well, then you're probably not chosen. Whatever part your choice is in the equation, whatever part your choice is in the equation, choose to believe in Jesus. You choose, and you'll discover that he's already chosen you. If you're thoroughly confused, then I feel like I've done my job on this subject. <laughs> Jesus says in this very chapter, I will give you everlasting life. I'll do it. I'll give it to you. How do we receive it? In the same chapter, by believing in him. That's our part. That's our work. And the Lord apparently feels that's everything we need to know on this subject. That's all you guys need to know. Believe in me. That's all you need to worry about. Believe in me. So next huge mega topic. 
Didn't split the church on that one. Let's give it another go. Okay. All the way back in verse 27, we heard Jesus say, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Let me ask you something. If you can lose everlasting life, is it everlasting life? If you can lose eternal life, is it really eternal life? What does the phrase everlasting life even mean? It means life without end. So if that everlasting life can come to an end, then it's not everlasting life. That's why Jesus chose to call it everlasting life. In the original language, it means everlasting life. The belief that you cannot lose everlasting life, that you cannot lose your salvation, is called the doctrine of eternal security, and we believe that. When you're truly saved, you're brought into the family of God. It's a blood relationship on a spiritual level made possible by the blood of Jesus. Our spiritual DNA has changed, and we are now part of the family of God. Unbelievably, the Bible says we are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. That's the family relationship we have. Sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. If you have a child or children and you're any kind of good father or mother, and I use that phrase, any kind of good father or mother, because I know it makes every parent go, oh, he's talking to me. So I've got you all focused right now. Here's what I know. I know that no matter what your son or daughter ever does, they will never stop being your son or daughter. Never. It doesn't matter what crime they commit. They will always be your son. They will always be your daughter. And the reason is the blood relationship you have with them. They're not your kids based upon their behavior. There's no chart with a line that says, if your behavior dips below this, you're no longer my kid. It's not how family works. Is there anything your kids could do to stop being your kids? There's nothing your kids could do to stop being your kids. That's how we're wired to love as fallen, sinful human beings. So how do you think your heavenly father loves you? What sort of intensity do you think he loves his kids with? If your love for your children is strong enough to keep going even when they disappoint you, do you really believe that your heavenly father is more fickle? That his love for you comes and goes based on your behavior? You really believe that we love our kids better than God loves his kids? Of course not. Of course not. And that's why out of all the analogies God could have chosen to relate to us through, he chose to give us the picture of adoption. He chose that. He chose to reveal himself as the father. He chose to define our relationship as sons and daughters of the living God, brothers and sisters of Jesus, a family adopted. He chose all of those things. It wasn't a coincidence. You know, people are amazed to find out we have five kids because what they're really thinking is, didn't you figure it out after three? Didn't you figure out that they're going to embarrass you in public? Didn't you figure out that they're going to cost you money and take up all your free time and be ungrateful and have cranky attitudes and poop their pants? Didn't you figure that out by the third kid? Hey, we chose to have more. Some intentionally. (laughs) He's a miracle-working God. Hallelujah. (laughs) But you know, we knew the deal. We knew the deal going into it. We understood it. And when Jesus brought you into his family, he knew the deal. He knows everything you're going to ever do with full knowledge of what you would do for the rest of your life. He died for you. 
with full knowledge of everything you would ever do. He said, come and be a part of my family. If he has full knowledge, why in the world would his love come and go? Why would he have extended it in the first place? Why wouldn't he have said, no, 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 we're going to wait till later on in your life when you really get it together? It should bring you incredible peace that he knew all your junk. The stuff you're going to do that you don't even know about yet. He knew it all when he said, I choose you. I choose you. He knew it all. He didn't go into it with blind optimism. Write this down. Jesus keeps me saved. Jesus keeps me saved. Jesus keeps me saved. He already knew all my junk when he chose to save me. And none of it takes him by surprise. Jesus keeps me saved. Did you see what verse 37 says? It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. The idea is there's nothing a person can do once they belong to Jesus, which will make Jesus kick him out the family. Nothing. Did you see what Jesus said in verse 39? This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. Jesus isn't going to lose any of his brothers and sisters. And did you see what Jesus said, continuing on into verse 40? That everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have temporary life, coming and going life, seasonal life, everlasting life, everlasting life. How did you gain your salvation? Did you work to earn it? It was a free gift from Jesus. Why in the world would you think that you have to work to keep it? So you are saved by grace, but you're going to stay saved by works? It doesn't even make sense. You didn't gain it based upon your behavior, so he's not going to remove it based upon your behavior. His love is not more fickle than ours. If you don't believe in eternal security, then, man, you were really taking your life in your hands driving here today if you've been sinning this week. Thank God you made it because you'll have a chance to repent at the end of this message. Now if you die in a car wreck, you're good. But had you died in a car wreck on the way here, probably hell. Do we really think that that's how it works? We get before Jesus and we say... Jesus, I would have had a chance to repent. And he said, sorry, lightning strikes happen. Bad luck. Maybe, you know, if, if, if you'd been out golfing in a storm on Wednesday instead of Tuesday, then you would have been safe. It's not how it works. God's not fickle like that. His love is strong enough to make it through your low points. If your love as a parent is strong enough to make it through the low points of your children, don't you think God's love is strong enough to hold you and I? through our lowest points. There's no question. His love is strong enough. Once you belong to Jesus, he will never, ever lose you. I hope this morning you're glad you belong to Jesus. He'll never lose you. He will never lose you. In conclusion, it's good to stop and ask ourselves these questions every now and then. Would, would I rather have more of the blessing or the blesser? Would I rather... Have more provision or more of the provider. And please remember, here's the little cheat on this. They're not mutually exclusive because Jesus said what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. He says seek the provision 
you probably won't end up with the provider or the provision. Seek the blessing, you probably won't get the blesser or the blessing. But seek the blesser, seek the provider, you'll probably get the blessing and the provision too. But Jesus says, don't get those confused. If you're in a season where it seems like there's not enough provision or blessing, perhaps the Lord is offsetting that by offering you more of himself. And perhaps what he's asking you this morning is, am I enough? Am I enough? And he wants to get that settled so that he can move on to blessing you, so that he can move on to providing for you. But that has to be settled. We have to get to the place where we say, if all I have is you, that's okay. That's enough. That's enough. That's what happened to Paul when he had the physical ailment that wouldn't leave him. What did God say to him? He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. You need to be reminded of that again. Paul needed to be reminded of that. We do as well every now and then. I believe that the Lord wants to prosper all of us. But if he's going to make us more like Jesus, he has to get us to the place where we don't really care if he prospers us or not. That's the irony here. He has to get us to the place where what we want is him more than anything else. We have to deal with that. Nothing in your life if you take one thing away from today, remember this. Nothing in your life is more pressing, more urgent than your relationship with Jesus. Nothing is more pressing or more urgent than your relationship with Jesus. Or maybe today you just needed to be reminded of the glorious truth that you can't lose your salvation. Once you belong to God, he's never going to let you go. It's his work that saved you. And it's his work that keeps you saved. Maybe this morning you just need to rest in that. Let's just thank Jesus for the joy of our salvation this morning. As we pray and worship, let's just remember that we have so much to be thankful for. That the only work we were ever called to was just believing that he's done all the work for us. If that was it, man, what a reason to celebrate. That should be a, a one-minute sermon right there. Jesus did all the work for us. Let's worship now. It'll be a good message. It'll be a complete message. So let me pray for us. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? First opportunity we want to give is for anyone who's here today, and you've heard this and you've just realized that you have never made that decision to just believe in Jesus. Maybe your heart hasn't been open till now. Maybe you've had bad information but this morning, the truth has just dawned on you in a glorious way that your greatest need is Jesus and to be brought into his family. And you're still just struggling with the idea of really all I have to do is believe in him. It's believe and receive him. Welcome him into your life. Want him more than anything else. Put your eternal needs over your earthly needs. He will do incredible things in your life. If that's you today and for the first time you're making the choice to put your faith in Jesus and follow Jesus, you need to do two things. You need to mark on the back of your connection card that you're doing that. And then just come up and tell me after the service. Just going to give you some books and a few resources to help get you going in your relationship with him. He's choosing you today. He wants to bring you into his family. If you haven't done that, give your life to Jesus today. 
And let me just pray for the rest of us. Jesus, what, what can we say but thank you? Thank you for our salvation. Thank you that it's nothing we did. It's nothing we earned. It is the free gift of a God whose love is stronger than our sin, stronger than even death. God, thank you for a love that is stronger than all the barriers we've thrown up between us and you. Thank you that you've torn them all down so that we could be brought into your family. Your brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of your father. We just thank you for that. We rejoice in that, God. You are so good to us. We love you so much. Would you just spend a minute reflecting on these things, thinking on these things, praying to the Lord, allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to you, and I'll ask us to stand together in a moment, and then we'll worship together.